Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hi there, and welcome back to our video series, Two Crowns, as we wrestle with finding God in a world affected by COVID-19. Now, we've made it. It's our final session, and so far we've covered some ideas and we've opened up the conversation about things like suffering and the, and the meaning of life, how we all have to wrestle with God and evil in our day-to-day life, how this COVID-19 pandemic has shaken our foundations to their very core, exposing questions about purpose and hope. And constantly, I think it's come down to the same idea that, yes, the crown of the coronavirus has been dominating our hearts and minds. It's exposed certain things in our hearts. But we've constantly been saying that maybe in this historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be God, come in human form to suffer for us and with us, that maybe in him, the man who wore the other crown, the crown of suffering, of thorns, maybe even in this season, we can discover something of God. We can know him, trust him, even follow him. I want to remind us of something from our first session The Oxford mathematician John Lennox who says a Christian is not so much a person who has solved the problem of pain, suffering and the coronavirus, but one who has come to love and trust a God who has himself suffered. You see, this COVID-19 season has just stirred all these big questions in our hearts again. Those questions that we would prefer to put off for another time of life and of death, of purpose, of identity of joy, of true satisfaction. But I think it's led us down the path to the most important question in this final session. And that is simply this, what will you do with Jesus? What will we do with Him? You know, one of the most prominent uh, authors in the Western world's history is H.G. Wells. And he said this of Jesus. He said, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. You see, he was born in this obscure town. He never traveled more than 300 kilometers away from his place of birth. He lived such a simple life. His ministry only lasted three years. He never wrote a single song or book or manifesto. He didn't marshal an army of any sort, and he never even started a political party or any kind of movement of that sort. And yet, no more songs and artworks and designs have been dedicated to. No more universities and orphanages and hospitals has been started. And no more testimonies of life transformation have been given than to this man's life. In his honor, this single man has changed all of history. The identity of Jesus is the question of our time. And it's the one that I think we have to wrestle with in this COVID-19 season. And I want us to explore that question by looking at two of the most prominent questions, I think, in the whole Bible. The first one is actually the very first question that God asks. It's also the shortest question in the whole Bible. 
See, the Bible opens in the book of Genesis by showing us this perfect relationship of God with mankind. And from him, man and woman get their identity and purpose and joy and satisfaction. But as we've spoken of before, we see this moment where we fracture this relationship with God. We choose to remove him from the throne room of our hearts and we put ourselves in there instead, wanting everything to revolve around us wanting to worship ourselves and those things around us. We want to be the captains of our own soul. We want to run our lives according to our own ideas of morality and justice and truth. We want to be the ones who bow down before sex and money and power in worship. And because of this decision, this fracturing in our relationship, moving away from God, rebelling against God, rejecting God, we see that there's this deep shame and guilt in man's heart. And so the man and the woman, they try and hide from God. And it's in this moment that this one word question comes from God. It's the Hebrew word, ayeka. In English, it says this, Genesis 3, 8. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? Is there a more important and prominent question in the history of the world, especially in this season, that can be asked of our hearts, where are you? Now, immediately we might say, well, why would the omniscient creator of the universe, the one that spoke existence into being, why would he ask a question like this? But of course, the question was not asked for him. The question was asked for them. It's asked for us. Where are you? You know, as we've seen, it's difficult. It's almost impossible to try and sidestep this reality that there is something so deeply wrong in the heart of man and in the world. We live in a world of genocide, of, of child sex trafficking, of constant war, of, of backstabbing, of, of white-collar crime, of hurt, of pain. We cause these things amongst ourselves. And we can't sidestep the idea. We have this deep intuition that there's something so broken at the heart of mankind. And at the center of all that brokenness, what do we find? We find our own hearts. We find our own folly and desire. And the Bible just comes out and calls this sin. We don't want to speak about this, but we should. It's in this that we rejected God. That we said we do not want God. We want to be God. We want to worship ourselves. We want to be the ones at the center. We want to take things that are good but not ultimate. Like career or money or sexuality or family. And we want to bow down and worship before those things. There is such a deep brokenness. Where are you? You know, one time Time Magazine asked prominent authors to give their opinion on this question. What is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote in a simple response. He said, Dear editors, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. See, Chesterton understood that the deepest pain, the deepest trouble in man's heart is not that we need better government or our lack of technology or planning or our background or lack of education. No, the deepest pain, the deepest trouble at the heart of all of man's existence is sin that we choose and that affects us so deeply. 
In our previous session, we spoke about the dance of God, that into eternity, God has been in this permanent place of relationship, of, of equal trust, of love, of respect, and that he opens in creation this dance to us, that we would find our true hope and purpose and joy and meaning in this dance with him. Well, sin is mankind saying we will have our own dance around those people and things we find around us. It's no longer the creator being worshipped, but the created. We will bow down before those good things, make them ultimate things. But as we've seen, it never works. We constantly come to the place of brokenness. It fails us. It leaves us empty. So the British author Malcolm Muggeridge once wrote this. He said that the brevity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, it's the most intellectually resisted fact. Isn't that true? This original sin, this thing that's at the very heart of all of us, we see it, we feel it, we exercise it every single day. It's there, and yet we resist it, we ignore it, we don't want to speak about it or deal with it. Now, I have a friend from school who lived just for most of his life, a life of excess, which meant, you know, waking up in beds of people that he had hardly known, just constantly self-medicating to, to stay numb, and most nights having to get so drunk that life would, in a sense, just become this long blur of an existence. And he said the reason why he had to keep up this flurry of activity, maybe in your case it's career, maybe it's sexuality, maybe it's this pursuit of proving something to yourself or to your parents. He said the flurry of activity was there because he could not in silence face himself. That's us. It's there, but we cannot face it. And so what do we do? Often then we, we try and pivot. We go the other way. Now we are going to be good people and do good things, be moral upstanding citizens. But even in those good things, maybe when it's charity or we say we're going to start doing some religious practices, even in that, that self-centeredness is still there. We are trying to just soothe our own conscience. We want to project this image of a good moral person. We want to make sure that people perceive us as upstanding. And in the end, if we're very honest, when we do these so-called good things, we feel that we now deserve a good life. You know, Jesus illustrated this in one of the records of his life in the book of Luke chapter 15, he tells this story, this parable of these two sons who both reject the father. They don't want the father. They go their own way. The one in rebellion and the one in religiosity as it were. So the, the rebellious son, he goes and he says, I'm going to make my own way. I will discover my own truth. I will live up to my own potential. But in the end, as he spent himself on money, sex and power, he is distraught. He realizes it doesn't satisfy and there's this deep longing in his heart. But the other brother, the elder brother, he is the one who stays the course, always moral, always towing the line, gritting his teeth, doing the right thing. But in the end, he is so filled with bitterness because he doesn't get the life that he feels he deserves. That is our hearts, friends. Whether rebellion or religion, we find ourselves coming up empty. Isaiah 53 verse 6 just calls this sin. It says, we went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. But then Romans 3.23 just puts it even more bluntly. It says, all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed God's intent, his holiness, his justice, his truth, his creation mandate, his purpose for us. We've taken the good things that he's given us, made them ultimate things, bowed down before them. It's like our hearts are these idle factories just trying to find things to pursue and to fulfill us, but we come up empty. And that leads us to our second question, the hopeful question, the good news question. So you see, there's a moment in the life of Jesus in the book of Mark, one of the recordings of his life where they are walking and his disciples are with him and they start telling him of these rumors, these you know, gossip stories that people are saying about who is Jesus? You know, he's this or he's that or he's this person. But then Jesus turns around and asks them the most important question that any of us could ever answer for ourselves that I think we have to answer in this season. Mark 8, 29, he says, but you, he asked them, what do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? See, people were as confronted with that question in Jesus' day as we are today. Is he just a good moral teacher? Is he just a good man? Is he just a man of wisdom or of religion? Is he just some philosophical sage or someone who started a great movement? Or is he who he said and claimed to be? Because at the very center of all of human history, that question emerges. The identity of Jesus. It's the question. It's the question that all other questions orbit around. Because Christianity claims that Jesus was God incarnate. In other words, God come in human form to the earth to suffer and die, to take our brokenness and sin upon himself. And if that's true, if God has come in human form, there's this interesting and peculiar, strange, striking thing that happens. We find him at the end of these records of his life, that God incarnate is dead on a cross. So immediately, if he is who he says he is, if he is God incarnate, we have to ask the question, why is the God of the universe come in human form dying on a cross? And probably one of the most cliche and yet so impactful verses in the Bible, John 3, 16 gives us the answer. It says, for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's not so much about us finding God in a world affected by COVID-19, but about God come to find us, even in a world affected, amidst a world affected by COVID-19. It's the most astonishing idea in the history of mankind. You know, in our modern age, in our slang, we have a word that we use for these kinds of moments. Astonishing truth, where your world is just flipped upside down. We say, wow. You know, that's when you are gobsmacked. You can't believe it. It's too good to be true. It's incredible. And we have these moments all the time. You know, when you think of the universe, you think of the fact that at the, at the Big Bang, something as small as a pin in one second explodes to more than 100 million kilometers. That's, that's wow. 
When you think of the fact that when you blink your eye, more than 200 muscles are working intricately together. That's just wow. You know, when people visit these great monuments of mankind, when you go to the Great Wall of China or the Great Pyramids of Giza, you can't help yourself but just saying, wow, love will do that to you. When Shay and I, my wife, we had known each other for more than 12 years. And we finally, after that, just shared, we spoke our undying love for one another. And I'll never forget, just right after that, we had this dance. We had already committed to go with other people. And when I stepped into that auditorium and I saw her for the first time after this confession of love, man, it was wow. Now, these moments in life are good. They are special. But I want to tell you about the greatest wow in the history of mankind that has changed everything. Because you see, most people think that the Christian movement has gotten its start and it exploded because of some philosophy or or moral guideline, a way of living maybe. But that's not true. If we look at the earliest accounts of the church in the book of Acts chapter 2, we see that the church, it says, was filled with awe, with wow. They were filled with passion. They were filled with deep excitement. And where did this come from? Where did this astonishment, this awesome feeling amongst the people come from? Was it simply a teaching? Was it simply just a philosophical guideline? Was it simply because of people trying to be good moral people? No, I think it's from somewhere else. So maybe step with me quickly into their shoes. Let's go back 2,000 years for a moment. See, out of nowhere comes this carpenter from Nazareth. And no one had ever taught like him before. No one had ever lived like him before. No one had ever loved like him before. And so you want to follow him. You leave everything behind. And people say, you're crazy for doing that. But you say, no, there's something special about him. He's going to change the world. His movement is going to change the world. And so for the next season, it's just this roller coaster adventure with him. And then at the end of three years, it all culminates on this Sunday where he comes riding into Jerusalem. And the people want to make him this Jewish king. But he says, I've not come to be that kind of king. And it all goes down south very fast because by that Friday, that Christians call Good Friday, he is dead. He's murdered. And not just dead, but he has been crucified. He's been nailed to this this piece of upright wood like a common criminal. Like tens of thousands of people before him. Nothing special, nothing unique about that. And so for you and for the rest of his followers, it means absolute devastation. It's all come to nothing. The movement is dead. There is nothing. And then that Sunday, news starts swirling around that he has been raised from the dead, that he is appearing to individuals and to groups that he's speaking about the next phase of this movement. And I think the first Sunday, that Sunday, when the news was being shared that that Jesus, the carpenter, the rabbi, that he has been raised from the dead, it was not moral teaching, it wasn't guideline, it wasn't this is a way that you can live or be a better person, but it was because of the fact that he was resurrected. There was a wow on the lips of the people. Why? Because... 
Christianity, the Bible says that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us, in our place, because of us, with us, on our behalf, that it calls good news for all people. The first reason is because I think the resurrection actually happened, that it's historical. Maybe you say, no, that's impossible. This is legend. This is myth. These are just stories that have built up over time. No academic would ever believe this. But would it shock you to find out that the greatest majority, virtually all scholars of all backgrounds, historians, whether they are secular, whether they are um, you know, doubting, agnostic, whether they are Jewish, Christian, whether they are atheists, they would agree Historians, all of them on these six facts, that Jesus died by crucifixion, that soon afterwards his followers had real experiences that they felt were appearances of the risen Jesus, that their lives were so radically transformed as a result that they were willing to die for this message and belief in the resurrection. Fourthly, that these things were taught right after the resurrection. It erupted suddenly. Fifthly, that James, Jesus' own unbelieving brother, prior to the crucifixion, now became this pillar of belief, even willing to die for what he believed about Jesus. And finally, that Paul, a man who was a persecutor of the church, who hated this new church movement because of a similar appearance, you know, uh, a resurrection experience, he would say, became a defender of this truth, willing to and actually dying for this belief. That's historical. Even just those facts, all historians would agree on, but I think there's so much more than simply that. To to just try and get that out of the way is very, very difficult. In fact, there's this Oxford scholar, Richard Borkham. He's written one of the most important books in the last 30 years, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he says that, yes, there were people in the time of Jesus. And it's, it's well documented that would write fiction and myth But there were people who set out to write serious historical documentation, would rigorously work with the witnesses to these events. And their documents would be spread out so that all people could check their validity. And he says that is definitely what we have in these accounts of the life of Jesus. The good news according to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. So he says, for instance, look at how Luke, the doctor writing of the life of Jesus, look at what he says, how he starts his account. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. You can check it for yourself. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you an orderly sequence. Regardless of what you might think of these gospel accounts, they were written by real people recording real events with absolute serious intent. They were willing to die for this. So the atheist author Jeff Lauder says, I remember thinking to myself that if I took the time to investigate the resurrection, I could make anyone who believed it look like a fool. Or so I thought. I was about to discard it as another illogical religious belief, yet I found it extremely difficult to deal with as a critic. Why were they so passionate about this historical reality? It's because of this next idea, not just that the resurrection was historical, but that it changed everything. 
You see, the resurrection is the pivot point. It's the center of all of history, even to this day. We still have our calendar according to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the truth that has changed everything in its wake. We all have these wow moments in our life. But to be honest, most of them don't really change much. They come and go. I'll never forget as a child the first time being a top table mountain and a dusty literally robbed a lettuce leaf right off my plate. That was wow for me. You know, the first time I got a paycheck and I saw how much of it goes to income tax. That was wow. But most of these things, you know, they come and go. Life and death's not affected. But then you get such good news that nothing can ever be the same again. And this is what's claimed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, this man called Jesus of Nazareth, he he comes onto the scene. And no one had ever taught like this before, that God is real, that he is loving, that he is truthful, that he's just, that he's holy, that he's more loving than the most loving father or mother could ever be, that he deeply cares for us but also that he is infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely powerful, but also infinitely personal. And that this God has come to address the brokenness, death, and sin in our hearts. And so this movement starts around Jesus, and it's incredible, but at his death, just as quickly it looks like this movement has died. And that's what makes it so incredible that only on that Sunday, not because of the teaching or the philosophy, but because of the resurrected Jesus, the church explodes. People by the thousands start turning from their old ways of of pagan worship and idol worship and, and old gods, and they start worshiping this carpenter as the Lord of the universe. Listen to what it says, some of these first disciples who come upon Jesus. Matthew 28. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Notice that word. They worshipped him. That was a wow to change all wows. It was not simply because he was a great man, but because God had come to do something so finally and so truthful on that cross that they would worship him. Yesterday, he was just a crucified criminal. He was another failed Messiah, but today he's the Lord of the universe. But the reason why many, I think, curse in the name, but billions worship in the name of Jesus is finally, not just because the crucifixion is historical and it's changed everything because it's deeply personal. It's deeply personal. You see, we all face, I think, this amazing and scary reality that we are born, not of our own choice, and then we live this life and then each and every single one of us will die. And the fact is, the Bible says the greatest wow of your life will not happen in this life, but it will happen the very next moment after you die. See, we don't want to speak about this, but we have to speak about this. The Bible says that in that moment, right after death, you will either be with God fully and finally in his new creation, and all the tears will have been wiped away, and you will find your ultimate joy and satisfaction faction united with God or it says in rejecting God 
in choosing to go our own way, in embracing that sin, it says that we will be separated from God forever. That is the most incredible wow in the history of the world. But listen, why do they call it good news? Listen to what it says in 2 Peter 3. The Lord does not delay his promise, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God doesn't want a single person to be lost. He wants every single one of us to embrace and find life In Jesus, he is the one who restores and renews us. It's in him that we find ultimate peace, even amidst COVID-19. I think this is the truth and I think it will happen. Why? Because Jesus has risen. This news is so personal. Why? It means that, that sin, your sin is dealt with. It means that death, your death is dealt with in Jesus. Let me end with a last set of questions that I think represents all of us. As one of these disciples, Mary, comes to this tomb and she finds it empty. She encounters Jesus and he asks her these two words. He says, why are you crying? And then he asks, who is it that you are seeking? I think In this moment, this is all of us. Why are we crying? Who is it that we are seeking? I think mankind is crying because we have wrecked ourselves inwardly and we are wrecking ourselves outwardly as we bow down and worship to the created and not the creator. And we seek and we we struggle to find something that will satisfy us, but we can't. Who is it that we are seeking, especially in a world affected by COVID-19? I think Jesus is the one that we are all seeking. It's in him, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The one who had to ask this question of his father on the cross, why have you forsaken me? It is so that he would embrace us. Renew us, restore us, bring us back to our purpose and identity and fulfillment in Him. He is the one that we are seeking. Maybe you've never in your life thought of speaking to God and praying. But I want to say to you that I believe the resurrection is not just historical. It doesn't just change everything, but it's deeply personal for you. And I want to encourage you in this moment to go down on your knees and to speak to God and to confess to him and say, I confess God that there is a deep brokenness within me, that I have embraced and chosen and perpetuated the sin. But God, I confess that Christ is who he said he was. And I accept your free grace that on that cross, that I have been exchanged in my brokenness and death and rebellion with the life and the purpose and the joy of Jesus. That is a prayer that you can pray today and you can trust God that through His life and spirit, He will come and renew you. I do not think we find God in a world affected by COVID-19. I believe He has come to find us 
in Jesus. If you feel that God has done something in your heart today, will you please reach out to us on our Two Crowns page? We would love to journey with you. I hope to see you there.